everyone, and welcome to uh, this edition of Beyond the Column podcast. This week, we're going to talk about a book I recently read. And to make this story make a little more sense, we're going to go back to sixth grade. Now, in sixth grade, the big thing to do was to do the presidential book report. If you went to the elementary school I did, everybody knew about this starting at about fourth grade. It was one of those things that took over the entire school. The hallway was plastered with sixth grade renditions and portraits of individual presidents, and everybody knew that students in the sixth grade were working on this book report. And so when I got to be in sixth grade, I remember the big day where we were going to assign which president each student would have, and I was so upset because I got Herbert Hoover. And in my mind, it was like, how could I be stuck with, at the time, one of the worst presidents ever? This was the guy that was in charge during the Great Depression, and nobody had anything nice to say about Herbert Hoover. And after I did that report in which I found some interesting things about Hoover's life, I decided that I was going to be a Herbert Hoover fan. And so uh, one of the books that I've recently read is this huge huge book. I've got it right now in front of me. Uh, Hoover, An Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times by Kenneth White. Uh, Kenneth White is an author, also a, a newspaper publisher in Canada. And why he chose Herbert Hoover for a book, I will probably never fully understand, but it has become really, a, it was a very engaging book to read all 600 plus pages of President Hoover, who you would think there's really not much to, to write about in 600 pages. Well, I was immediately engaged with the book after I read page six. And you're thinking, wow, this, this book really grabs you. And it does, at least for me, because I found a really interesting fact about Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover's grandfather um, was born right here in, in the county that I live, Miami County, Ohio. And his great-grandfather is actually buried in a small little town in the southwest corner of the county uh, called West Milton. And Hoover grew up a Quaker, and there's actually a little bit of a Quaker contingency here in Miami County, Ohio. And so you, th you think about those things, and they kind of start to make sense. But getting back to Herbert Hoover, uh, Herbert Hoover was born in West Branch, Iowa, and he nearly died as a young baby. The, the book also talks about an instance where they had to bring in the doctor and the doctor was a rough, not rough, but, you know, a country doctor slapped him on the butt a couple times and gave him some rough medicine and, and he made it through. And uh, Herbert Hoover was also um, orphaned at, at a fairly early age in his life. Um, his father died when he was terribly young. You know, his mother died a few years later, 
And so Herbert Hoover ended up moving out to Oregon and he worked with his father. I mean, it's his uncle, his father's brother and his uncle um, was kind of a, a shopkeeper type, I guess, you know, the uh, pioneer entrepreneurial type and, and sold things in the little town that he grew up in. Herbert didn't get a lot of affection from his uncle, nor did I imagine a lot of young boys in that age got a lot of affection from anybody. Um, and so he grew up in Oregon trying to figure out what he was going to do uh, with his life. He was not a terribly smart child. Um, in the book, there's plenty of stories of handwritten notes in which his spelling was atrocious. His grammar was bad. And you think about this man who, who ended up really being in the highest seats of power in Washington, um, was not exactly the most learned individual, but he had a very keen mind. He had such a keen mind that he was actually uh, one of the first students at Stanford University. And as he was going through his university studies, he wanted to create for himself a life that was, was that was comfortable. And so he decided to go into engineering, which was a, a new field of study uh, back in those early days. Uh, we're talking about the 1910s here. Uh, no, even earlier than that, probably even the late 1800s as I'm looking over my notes. Um, he studied as a mining engineer. And when he was a mining engineer, it took him literally all over the world. He spent time in Asia. He spent time in Australia. Um, he was a, played a little bit of a pivotal role, the Boxer Rebellion in 1899. Um, he spent time in Europe because he was working for European mining companies. He had a reputation as a hard-nosed, hard-charging man. He could survey a, a mine faster than anyone else. Um, he was very difficult on his crews. Um, there's even a quote in the book that says, you know, I've met the devil and the devil is me is something that he would, uh, was attributed to saying. And so he was a very, very hard charging, but a very, um, deliberate, a very entrepreneurial spirit. But I think above all else, he had a very quick mind. Um, he was able to organize teams to get things done, organize his own thoughts in a way to accomplish big things. And really, by the time he was in his 30s, which, you know, you're talking about the, the, the beginning of the 20th century, Herbert Hoover was probably one of the most richest men in the world at the time. Well, He's in Europe um, at the beginning of World War One. He's living in London. Uh, he's still doing mining engineering, but at this time he kind of rises through the ranks to end up being a individual that owns, manages, and operates these types of things from afar. And so World War One breaks out and he gets this sense that he wants to do something else with his life. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up running a group called the CRB, which is the committee for the relief of Belgium. At this point, philanthropy's taken over his life. He realizes there's more to life than making money. Perhaps his Quaker roots are kind of getting back to him. 
And so he helps create an environment in which individuals and businesses and even foreign governments can give to an organization to help feed Belgium. Now, why Belgium? Belgium was kind of at the front line of World War I. The Germans had taken it over. And up until this point, the rules of war is if you conquer a people, you must feed them. But the Germans had no intention of doing that at all. And so the Germans decided to let the uh, Belgians kind of fend for themselves. And that did not work so well. Um, Nearly 6 million people in Belgium were at risk of starvation. So Herbert Hoover took it upon himself. He organized uh, efforts that raised millions of dollars to feed the 6 million people in Belgium. And it was more than just raising money. He had to take basically the whole supply chain effort of trying to feed 6 million people upon himself. So he was the one that was finding the food to purchase. And then he was the one that was organizing how to get the food to the ports. Um, He was the one that was organizing the ships. He was the one that was organizing the distribution in Belgium on the ground. And of course, you're doing all of this in a war zone. Um, His reputation after World War I was sterling. Um, He had earned the trust of both the the Germans and the, the Allied powers during World War I. He was actually part of Woodrow Wilson's negotiating team um, in World War I that drafted the, uh, the armistice agreement between the, the German powers, uh, the Central Powers, and the Allies during World War I. And so he, com- he, he leaves World War I, he, he comes back to America, and he is seen as this amazing philanthropist, this business leader that has accomplished so much, he seems to be a natural fit for the office of the president of the United States. Well, in 1920, he declines to run for president of the United States, but President Warren Harding taps him to be secretary of commerce. And every book you read on Herbert Hoover, you quickly learn that Herbert Hoover is probably the greatest secretary of commerce that we've ever had. Um, He takes government and he really professionalizes it, especially within his own department. And one of the things that Herbert Hoover does as secretary of commerce is that um, he encroaches on other departments when they refuse to do something. And so he quickly finds out that everything that the government touches, uh, commerce touches. And so he gets involved in a lot of different things. And so you think about in your own community, if you live in a community where there's kind of these zoning codes that tell you what to build and how to build, well, the first model zoning code was drafted by Herbert Hoover. Uh, You think about how we drive on the right-hand side of the road. 
that was thanks to Herbert Hoover. You think about how you're, you listen to the radio and you have radio stations at specific set frequencies. That's all thanks to Herbert Hoover. So Herbert Hoover, as Secretary of the Commerce, really plays a very important role especially as kind of new technologies and new ways of life enter America. Well, Warren Harding dies in office. Uh, Calvin Coolidge succeeds him as president, and Calvin Coolidge keeps Herbert Hoover on as Secretary of State, and it becomes a little bit of an acrimonious relationship. Um, The two men don't share much um, in terms of information with each other. And Coolidge always believes that Herbert Hoover's gunning for his job. Well, the time comes in 1928 where Herbert Hoover uh, decides to run for president. And he wins. And he's he again is seen as this amazingly smart, bright, individual that has accomplished so much. Uh, His reputation as Secretary of Commerce is sterling. He does all of these wonderful things going back even before World War I. And so his victory is seen as as just something of of taking for granted, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Because, I mean, he's the natural choice to be President of the United States. So he ends up becoming elected president of the United States, and almost immediately he is faced with the Great Depression. And the Depression just annihilated the economy. Um, It took a toll on everyone and everything. Complicating the fact was the Dust Bowl that was occurring throughout the Great Plains in the early 1930s. Uh, things were not growing agriculturally. Everything was just a mess. And Hoover did a lot of things to try to stem the tide. He did try to infuse the money, uh, infuse money into the economy. He worked with big businesses at the time. He did everything that up to that point government could do to stop the ravages of this horrible, horrible, horrible situation that was happening in the United States. And nothing really worked. Um, Even there were times that it just, things looked good for a quarter or two, but then the bottom would drop out again. And so when 1932 comes along, it's pretty obvious that uh, Herbert Hoover was not going to get reelected, and Franklin Roosevelt wins in a landslide. Hoover is is upset, um, not only personally with the loss, um, feeling this sense of rejection from the American people, um, but he's bitter because he felt like he didn't have enough time to fix the problems that existed, and he felt that Franklin Roosevelt and his team's plans weren't going to do any better. And if you look at the history books, the recession, I mean, the depression actually lasted longer under Franklin Roosevelt than it did under Herbert Hoover. And so uh, Herbert Hoover has a bit of a point. And to make matters worse, Franklin Roosevelt 
did absolutely nothing to ingratiate himself with Herbert Hoover. And so when Hoover left the White House, he was on a a long, long journey of what to do because he left the White House at a fairly young age. I believe he was in his 50s, and so he still had this life ahead of him, but he was a pariah. Um, there's a story in the book where he's uh, driving with some friends to a fishing trip up in Oregon, and he kind of hunkers down in the back seat and hides because he doesn't want to be seen. Um, but kids come knocking on the door of the car and they're like, Hey, are you, are you Herbert Hoover? And he kind of sheepishly admits that he is. And he gets out and talks to some kids and he doesn't want to do it. And, 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 you know, he's, he's just kind of in this really, really tough spot trying to understand what the next thing for life is for him. And it didn't help that his predecessor, um, President Roosevelt was in office for a long, long time, uh, from 1932 to 1945. So 13 years he was he was uh, putting up <laughs> with with kind of uh, this individual in the White House who would give him no time. Well, Franklin Roosevelt does die in office, and he's succeeded by Harry Truman, and. Harry Truman and Herbert Hoover actually get along pretty well. So much so that Harry Truman asks Herbert Hoover to come to Washington and just kind of figure out how can we make this government work better. And so Herbert Hoover is put in charge of a task force uh, to re-engineer the executive branch of the federal government. He does that actually continues that work under President Eisenhower. And so his image is becoming rehabilitated more and more and more as he gets older. Uh, he ends up living to a well into his 90s. And in fact, when he was in his 80s, President Kennedy wanted him to lead this new idea called the Peace, the Peace Corps. And Herbert Hoover was interested in it, but he realized that he was uh, he was in his 80s and it was probably time for, for someone else to do that. Um, one of his last public appearances that he made was in 1964 at the Republican National Convention that nominated Barry Goldwater to be president. And Herbert Hoover gave this really stirring defense of Goldwater. And if you remember at the time... Um, Goldwater was a, a Western conservative that was not moderate. And you almost had this uh, internal battle within the Republican Party. Uh, Barry Goldwater and his types, the more conservative types. And you had kind of Nelson Rockefeller of New York, kind of a more uh, moderate slash liberal type in the Republican Party. And everybody knew that at the time that if uh, Goldwater was going to be nominated, it would be very difficult for him to beat Johnson. And, and that proved to be the case. But Herbert Hoover was out there kind of being a champion of this new conservatism. Um, and in fact, you know, the last, last chapters of the book talk about how Herbert Hoover 
had always been a champion of some of the new conservative ideas that now are kind of standard orthodox within the Republican Party. Herbert Hoover was always uh, anti-communism. He figured out from a pretty early time, even back in World War One, that the communists were not a group that you could trust. Um, in fact, I, I, I think it could easily be said that he trusted the, the Nazis more than he did the communists. And that's a little bit of a controversial statement, but at least Herbert Hoover actually did visit the Nazis in Germany before World War II and felt that even though you couldn't talk to him, you knew that from the beginning. Uh, he did feel it by many times that the communists would just kind of lead him along. And he didn't have much trust in the communists, especially those of the Soviet Union at the time. So Herbert Hoover uh, ends up living into his 90s. He ends up passing away uh, in a hotel in New York. Um, it was a it's a great book. Um, it's about 600 pages, but each page, it was a really, it was a page turner. Um, I don't read a lot of presidential biographies, but after reading this, I ended up having uh, an even greater appreciation of Herbert Hoover. Um, some of the things you learn about Hoover is Hoover was not exactly a, a wonderful father, um, living in Europe at the time when his family was still kind of here in the United States. He did not get to see much of his children, um, but his children did, did love him and, and did really respect what his father, what their father did. Um, Herbert Hoover also had a lot of insecurities, um, which when you read biographies like this, you find out that a lot of high powered individuals have such insecurities as well. But, uh, he knew he he had issues of not being as learned as others, um, but with his quick wit, he was able to kind of overcome those issues. Um, I think at the end of his life, he did regret not spending as much time with his family as he had hoped. But overall, uh, as he passed away, uh, he he did believe he had a very good life. Um, it was one that towards the end was actually filled with a lot of friends and a lot of family. Um, there's stories of a lot of people visiting him at the Waldorf hotel in New York, um, during his final days. And, and, you know, he, <laughs> he, he'd, he would greet visitors and nothing more than a, basically his, his, his house coat and forget to put in his false teeth, but he would still love to have people come by and talk to him. And so this was just a wonderful book. Again, it was Hoover in Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times by Kenneth White. Uh, looks like uh, Knopf is the publisher. Uh, physically, the book is just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful specimen of a book. I really enjoyed reading this. I would recommend anyone reading this. And, you know, I, I feel compelled to thank my um, sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Watson, for giving me that assignment of, of learning about Herbert Hoover, because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't miss out on, on what this wonderful book did. Thank you.
Hope you enjoyed uh, that little review of Hoover, An Extraordinary Life and Extraordinary Times by Kenneth White. We want to thank you for listening today. Um, feel free to get interactive with us on Twitter. Look for me at William Lutz. Uh, please send us your comments, your questions. We would love to have questions about what we're doing here, and we'll answer those questions as we get them in. We do want to take a moment and congratulate our winners of our uh, Starbucks gift card giveaway. Uh, Steve in West Virginia and Bethany in New Jersey, congratulations for winning. Uh, you picked up pretty quickly on who the audio cut was that we uh, shared this past week. And of course that was about Herbert Hoover. I'm not sure what we'll talk about next week. Um, again, you, you never know what's going to transpire in our lives that kind of, uh, inspire me to, to write a column for the Troy Daily News and the Piqua Daily Call. Um, get those 700 words out there every Monday. But um, if you have ideas, again, please share them with me at William Lutz. Again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.